welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 3 Dinhianicus and the Art of Mythic Cartography. Episode 4 Clevricron Part 1 The Feasting Hall. He would make them an invitation that they could not refuse. He would set the conceited heroes of Ireland, one against the other, and then sit back and watch the fur fly. But firstly, he needed a suitable setting, a theatre worthy of this fine jest. Brickwood began to plan the building of a magnificent feasting hall. Oh, it would take its inspiration from the marvels of the Mead Halls of Tara or Evan, but it would be finer, richer, better. Its pillars and lintels would be costly, carved in magnificence, with nine compartments from fire to wall, each fronting of bronze, thirty foot high, overlaid in gold. And the fittings and furnishings, oh, they would be as fine as the bright windows of glass. It was certain that Concover and his court would have no reason to complain. Oh, Bricou would make sure of that. A royal couch would be crafted from Concover, high above the others. It would be ruddy with carbuncles, lustered in gems, radiant with gold and silver. And around it would be placed the twelve couches of the twelve heroes of Ulster. A year it took to build, there at Dunrothriga on the bright sea coast. The construction of this great feasting hall was no mean feat. It took 30 of Ireland's notable builders to unite in its making. It took a strong wagon team to carry each roof beam and the strength of seven men to put the beam into place. Brickrew kept a close eye on this fine feasting hall as it grew and took form. And then he had his builders make one more addition. He had them build a balcony as high as Concover's couch but on the outside of the hall, with a window that looked down on the whole of the host. Once his mead hall was complete, he filled it with the fairest furnishings, bedding and blankets, dishes and goblets. He provided the best of foods and the sweetest of meads. His scene was set. Brickrew smiled to himself. Nothing was lacking now, nothing but the victims of this jest. Straightway he went to Evan Mucker to meet with Concover and the noble warriors of Ulster. Here beginneth the feast of Brickrew and the champion's portion of Evan and the Ulster woman's war of words, the hosting of the men of Ulster to Croken and the champion's wager in Evan. Now, that last bit is actually the title of the story, isn't it? Uh, well, yes, uh, as it appears, particularly in George Henderson's translation, which is what we are working from. It's the only one there is, isn't it? Uh, it certainly seems to be the only complete one. It's the only one that's readily available. Yeah, that you can get your hands on. Uh, it was published by the Irish Texts Society. Now, I think they reprinted it in, or republished in the 30s. Yeah. But the original translation was 1890s. So, again, we're looking at that... Very it's fairly heroic classical in oh its style. Oh my, and isn't it? You know, <laughs> the Ultonians. Oh God, it's full of Ultonians <laughs> and, and full of Mesimoths and all this kind of stuff. It can be a little bit... Uh, and bethinks. Oh God, yeah. Yeah, he bethought himself to betake himself to 
I don't know. <laughs> Anyhow, that's the, the version that we're working from. Of course, um, in the Irish Tech Society, it's got a lovely facing page translation. So for those of us who want to dive into the language, um, the opportunity is there. But uh, although I'll be putting in a couple of little test trenches with some parts of the the language, the Irish story, it really is too vast a site to do a complete excavation. A few passages. Exactly, yeah. I'll Just to try out and see what you think. Yeah. But because there, there is there is some lovely poetry, there's some great descriptions. I mean that that opening section that you created there is not it's not a million miles away from the direct translation. No, it was pretty close that yeah. time. I've just I've just modernised it a little. Yeah, so you know the, there are some fantastic descriptions. It's yeah. it's very it's both poetic and prosaic. The, yeah. the text. And in fact, yeah, that that first paragraph, in fact, is a neat synopsis of the entire story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it can be. It is quite a complex tale, which is uh -huh. why this is only part one. It's definitely a comedy. Absolutely, uh, but it's it's a kind of heroic comedy because it does extol the virtues of the great. Ulster heroes of Cúchalán and of Connell and Loigra and the whole load of them, uh, but it is—it's still got its tongue firmly in its cheek. You yes. know, I think it's—it's it's quite parodic as well. You know, you'd certainly regard it if you—if you filmed it as a comedy action film. Yeah, possibly along the kind of the lethal weapon or even even a Die Hard in some respects, although <laughs> perhaps a little I bit think, more yeah, complex. I think actually, that's probably a bit tough on Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite a magnificent building then. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's situated in, well, it says in the text, Dun Rodriga, and that's now known as Dundrum, mm -hmm. um, but not the Dundrum in Dublin, but the one up in County Down. Near Newcastle. It is near Newcastle. At Newcastle out in Northern Ireland. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just just to make it really clear. <laughs> Dundrum Bay, which it overlooks, which it, in old Irish is known as Loch Rodriga, between Carlingford Loch and, and Strangford Loch. Lock and yeah. north of Carlingford Loch. Yeah. Uh, very good place to build a defensive castle. Funny enough, comparatively recently, Time Team um, went to share in, an, in, in a dig at Dundrum Castle. Mm. Um, now they were looking at the Norman roots of it at John de Courcy's castle. Yeah. Now they, they went in June 12th, but the, the piece came out in, the programme came out in February 13th. But mm. what was really interesting, in, in exploring this, the, the Norman roots of this castle, mm. they uncovered something that had only been hinted at in the 50s, which was the stone footings of a 8th or 9th century roundhouse, definitely a feasting hall. Yeah. Then yeah. they found a lot of evidence of feasting mm. and a wonderful bone pin as well. Tony Robinson was going, now there is an old story and yeah. at this point I'm sitting there going, it's rigorous feasting hall. Yeah. And then apparently they're surprised that quite a lot of quite well-known archaeologists yeah. suddenly turn up. Exactly. It caused a lot of a stir mm. because it is quite significant. Yeah, and, and the timing is right because the, the structure wasn't it sort of between the 6th and 10th century. Or well, they said it like was that. around 9th century, but yeah. nobody knows for certain. No, and uh, the the language of uh, the Fleth Frickran, the one that Henderson translated or collated from a number of manuscripts, he puts it at the last quarter of the ninth century. So it sounds like the, there could have been. You can imagine a situation where this story could almost have been told at the at the grand to opening <laughs> to celebrate. Because often you would at that point you would tell stories of feasting in feasting halls, exactly. as you would tell stories of births at, um, at a birth, a birth yeah. or stories of you know, you always told the stories which mm. suited your event. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite likely that this story was, shall we say, established mm. to celebrate a feasting hall at this place. Absolutely. Well at least it's yeah. worth thinking about, it isn't it? Is. Yeah. 
Now, the text mentioned, and it was in that description at the beginning, that the hall, Brickroose Hall, was built on the model of the uh, feasting hall at Tara. Yeah. Can I call it a mead hall? Well, yes, you can. Uh, it's known as the Tech Mythkurta, and even though there have been some translations of Mythkurta as kind of mid-court or central courtyard, mm. it's actually from the root myth meaning mead, and the court is uh, in terms of circling. So it's actually a mead circling oh, house. Oh, I like that, yeah. Yeah, it's it's much more kind of poetic and... So it really is a mead house. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, I've been to Tara, obviously, yeah. on many occasions. It's an interesting place, but there's not actually that much to see. Mm. There's a lot of Neolithic um, monuments and mm. earthworks. But there is a cursus, um, a long, narrow shape, and this is generally known as the banqueting house, isn't it? Yeah, it's been identified for quite a long time as site of the mead hall. as Tehmed Kurta, but Do the text support the case. Uh, not really, no. I mean, it was given that name by uh, John O'Donovan and George Petrie in the nineteenth century. It's almost arbitrary, really. It's because you've got these two long bars of earth with little yeah, long gaps works, in yeah. them. Most archaeologists now, I think, uh, reckon it's it's. A processional way yeah, going up yeah, toward yeah. the main sort of parts of, and of course of the much, much earlier absolutely well this is it you know i mean we're talking of several thousand years before yeah, yeah. um the writing of our text it's one of our great neolithic sites is with, it? with yeah. a great number of earthworks and one oddly enough um iron age site yeah. on, right on the top of the hill yeah only the one and aren't there but the, uh, isn't one of the problems those illustrations of, of the mead hall yes that that in fact particularly in the book of Leinster and in the yellow book of Lecan um there are these actual diagrams made out of it's sometimes called the, the settling of the manor at Tara is one of the ways it's been mm -hmm. translated it's the seating arrangement within the mead hall of Tara and that's gone kind of in a rectilinear sort of shape so this is a bit confusing really it mm. looks like you've got uh, illustrations of something that matches this uh, Neolithic mm. cursus and there you've got beautiful illustrations mm. which describe where people sat in a feasting hall yeah. which seems to match the plan on the ground there's Is this a, a coincidence well I think there's a couple of errors involved it appears in this context where it's describing uh, all kinds of features of Tara and a lot of the texts on the Techmid Kurta and now I'm getting a lot of this from a fantastic article by Claude Downey in Eru volume 60 which is from a couple of years back mm -hmm. and uh, she's actually putting it in terms of Dinhenicus and the Techmid Kurta yeah you know that this uh, the descriptions come in this context of Dinhenicus and the, the Dinhenicus poems on, on Tara now it could be simply that the artist made the drawing schematic and mm. so it was easier to do it with straight lines than curved lines possibly or that it was a, a kind of an idealised So you're getting this ideal of an ideal needle Yeah, possibly, possibly or it might have been, you know, by the time we're to the Book of Leinster and, and so on we're well into post-Norman Ireland and, mm. you know, square buildings rectangular buildings were more familiar Yeah, it is. It is a bit confusing mm. I mean, you've got drawings in the Book of Leinster mm. and the Yellow Book of Lecan Yeah which show a rectangular plan mm. with a seating order carefully delineated. Yeah, yeah. And then these drawings are 14th century or so. Mm. So we can't blame this confusion on, uh, on 19th century archaeologists or antiquarians. Mm. Well, we can we can put some of the blame on them. <laughs> yeah, you, we'll give a go anyway. <laughs> but really, this is our um, medieval compacted layer. Yeah, yeah. I, rather I than so. so 
it's almost like they saw the earthworks of Tara and made mm. assumptions. Mm. Uh, quite possibly, quite possibly. Um, but the, the whole idea of their seating plan is very intriguing because we were talking about this sort of ideal mead hall, but the way that people are arranged within it is very much a microcosm of society as a whole and the structure of society. And as we've said so many times before, status was incredibly and that's important. that's very clear, whether yeah. it's a roundhouse as mm -hmm. it is in the description yeah. or a rectangular, it doesn't make any difference. Exactly. It's where you put people yeah. and their status, like yeah. Concover is high up, exactly. 12 heroes, each yeah. have to have their own couches. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, the, the, this is very much, if you don't have this... It's mm. all going to go wrong, isn't it? If yeah. the order and just, natural justice isn't there, mm. the world's going to fall down and the sky's going to fall in and the yeah. sea's going to swallow the land. Yeah, I mean, the, there's a bit of, again, as with so many of these things, uh, there's a bit of chicken and egg about it. You know, it's almost that you, you have to seat people, people according to their status out in the world. But, yeah, if you make an error about that status, then you're disrupting the order. Mm. So whoever was planning the feast and, you know, assigning people their seats had to get it right. We're really not going to get away with seeing this time as a classless society, are we? Oh, God, no. God, no, absolutely <laughs> not. And, of course, you're completely right. In the 14th century, rectangular buildings have become the norm. Yeah. I mean, oddly enough, it, it's strange that the Irish went on living in roundhouses for about a thousand years later. Because yeah, I mean, there wasn't, cousins there, wasn't yeah. the, there wasn't the Roman influence. Yeah, we to didn't have the way they did things. We didn't have right angles for a thousand years after. Yeah, and although they did get to be, um, we think that they were could be stone walled mm. by the latter period. Yeah, there's nothing to say a lot of them weren't stone foundations with a wicker support, with a wattle and daub support. I think there's also some medieval overlay, mm. even in the description of the of Brickroose Hall. I mean, for instance, there's glass mentioned yeah. for a start, windows of glass. Yeah, that wouldn't have been a common thing by any means. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. And then on top of that, what is this balcony? Is it a, a stone tower outside? Is it a wicker gallery? Mm. Or is it in fact the solar in a medieval hall. Mm. Uh, you, you've definitely got to look at this with, with medieval eyes as well as looking at an older story. Mm. Tara isn't the only model for a Brickroos feasting hall. It does say in the text that it's also modelled on the, the Mead Hall at Evwen, at Evwen Macher. Now, I think that's particularly interesting, mm. especially when um, what we know about uh, this particular site, Navan Fort, is mm. so strange. Oh, yeah. The archaeology of it is, I think, unique. Yeah. Now, we can refer anybody listening back to Series 1, Episode, episode two, 2, yeah, where we look at that place, look at the place in some detail. Mm. But it's remarkable. Um, I'm just going from memory. Mm. You, the, in about, uh, I think, over 100 years, mm -hmm. about 100 BCE, there was a roundhouse built, yeah. about 40 metres or so, mm. from memory I'm doing this. Yeah. And uh, basically, they built it very carefully, divided it into these sections, mm. filled earth into each section mm. and roofed it over and then they set fire to it yeah. and buried it yeah, yeah. in a mound. That's what's under the mound mm. in Avon Fort. Yeah. And this is just astonishing. Yeah. And nobody um, knows why. Um, it wasn't built to last. No, exactly. It wasn't and even I, built to live in. I think I have heard that the earth that it was filled with came from different parts of the country. This wasn't built in the 14th century. No. This was built 2,000 years ago. Exactly, yeah. Very, very this, odd. In this really weird and somewhat disturbing mm. actual uh, Iron Age period. Yeah, yeah. The mysterious Iron Age, of yeah. which we know so little. And of course, you know, one of the very few other Iron Age sites that we have is the wonderful trackway at Corlee. 
um, which again we can date to this kind of time because it's made of wood. 179. Something like that. I can never yeah. remember the exact numbers. But again, that would have taken you know huge amounts of people working together, huge amounts of resources to build it, and yet you know it only stayed above the ground. For they what, knew 10 the years? way it was built. Mm. It would have sunk within 10 years. Yeah. But from the quality of the workmanship yeah. and the way it was built, it was very clear that the builders knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. yeah. They built it for a one-off event. Mm. It wasn't meant to be permanent. Yeah. So here we have this strange idea mm. of uh, a great building mm. which is intended to be impermanent or a great road that's mm. intended not to last. Yeah, that's what's described in this story of Brickrew and his feasting hall. You know, it's the, built for a one-off purpose. Exactly, but that's somehow the building of it is meaningful. You know, yeah, that the yeah. fact that he puts this much effort into it is part of some kind of status statement or status establishment. You know, that that's part of what his role seems to be, is to, to create this yeah. one-off space. And of course, when we were talking back about Corlea, it's mm. in the story again, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. In the story of Mither and Aideen, yeah. That uh, this was, he built it with a mm. floor in it so it wouldn't last. Exactly. It was deliberately built not to last. Yeah. So yeah. what on earth was going on at that time? Well, it might not have been so uncommon to have, if you like, temporary structures. In Eru, the journal, um, mm. in edition 60 from just a couple of years ago, there's a fantastic article by Cloda Downey. And uh, it's the first article in uh, the journal, and it's actually called Dinhenicus and the Tech Midkurta at Tara. And she discusses a lot of these textual sources, um, like the Dinhenicus poems on Tara, like those diagrams in the Book of Leinster mm -hmm. and uh, the Yellow Book of Lekin and so on. And uh, what she concludes is that um, it seems that the Techmith Kurta was not, you know, a, a lasting monument that never changed. For example, in the descriptions, uh, Cormac McCart's Techmith Kurta had a diameter of 900 feet or 700 feet in some of them. It's rather large. It is pretty massive. But Loikera, who was the High King supposedly when Patrick came over, mm -hmm. uh, his Techmith Kurta was only 300 feet in diameter. Hmm. Now, uh, she points out that, I mean, these are not exact measurements by any manner or means, but that the Rothnarig, which is the main um, big stone Roth at Tara, is it's about a thousand feet in, in diameter one way um, and that, that that might have been if you like that might have been the imagined site for Cormac's massive mm -hmm. Techmith Kurta which again might have been this wicker structure that's just for Cormac's and just for his feast built just for that but that the Roth Loigera which is supposed to be where Loigera is buried um presumably uh, standing upright and facing Leinster so that he can fight <laughs> off the Leinsterman for per in perpetuity. But that that is, yeah. you know, it is just a little bit over 300 feet in diameter. You know, so it might have been imagined in this kind of medieval, Are you early medieval time. That on these ancient sites, mm. these Neolithic sites, yeah. that you've got, they are building, putting up temporary structures like Marquis at a wedding. They, they might well have been. But then, I mean, we've talked before about oinuchs and assemblies and so on. Maybe it's a bit like the famed Galway tent. All right, explain. Well, up until really quite recently, at the Galway races, which is, you know, a race meet over 10 days every July in Galway, um, the Fianna Fáil 
party who were in the ascendancy in Ireland for far too long um, had a marquee there. You only got in by invitation. <laughs> uh, there was an awful lot of champagne flowing and a lot of brown envelopes passed around and that's where the business of the country was conducted. <laughs> It reminds me, uh, not quite so, not quite such a sinister <laughs> or strange yeah. event, but uh, it reminds me of a certain tent many years ago at Glastonbury, where Green Party uh, policy was yeah. being made by people in various states of. Uh, no, I won't say anymore. <laughs> <laughs> various states of everything. I should have. But had. it was very interesting. Yeah. It was my first uh, first introduction to the Green Party. Was yeah. Policy being made in the middle of a tent. Yeah, I mean, so, that but, does sound a lot less sinister than the, <laughs> uh, the feet of all Galway tent. So somewhere in the middle of that, I think, we have our Tech Myth Corta, our feasting <laughs> hall, you know, which is, again, built for a purpose to reflect, I think, the society of that time. But it's interesting, isn't it, that he, he uh, you're saying that this is a temporary structure, mm. but that he puts a year's work into it. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, uh, probably this is all exaggerated, but it, it's an interesting no, no, idea. It's not necessarily exaggerated. Again, when you look at the effort that went into Evan Macha and that's into Corley, that's true. It, it might even be an underestimation. But it's strange, isn't it? This mm. this impermanence that you, yeah. you create a building mm. for just one use, mm. though it does exist. There are other there. Could, we could find examples from mm. folklore and from other cultures yeah. as well where this takes place. Yeah. Well, I think it's about time we got on with the story. Absolutely. So let's get this party started. <laughs> Who's Brickrew? Well, amongst other things, his role seems to be that of a Bruggett, uh, which mm. is often translated as a hospitler. Um, but the Bruggett was the kind of the top of the tree of the farmers, if you like, you know, where the king would be top of the tree of the nobles or aristocrats. Then, you know, the highest echelon you could reach as a farmer. Uh, someone producing material wealth was this Bruggett. Yeah, he's produced. Yeah, that's the, what happens to the food. It yeah. gets fed to people. Exactly, and and there are you know very particular qualifications you need to have. It's quite high status too. It is. It? Well, you know, it's equivalent to the not quite king of the <laughs> Yeah, king of the farmers, but you know, nearly as high as an olive who or the chief poet. You know, yeah, who yeah. was the the top of the learning tree, um, or the the bishop who was the top of the uh, religious tree when you had the clerical See, society. He's the top of the producer's tree. Yeah, absolutely. Kind yeah. of important. Absolutely. But also to be a, a Bruggets and a Hospitler, again, you had duties, not just privileges. And you had to have a house that was at the meeting of at least three roads. Um, um, and it was like a, an inn for Yeah, you can see anyone. how the inn becomes important at this point. Oh, in that case, it's, big time. it's more than just... Yeah. It's, says something for the the case of the status of the publican, really, doesn't it? Oh, it does rather, yes. <laughs> well, the, he also had to have cattle that could be enumerated in hundreds. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's where we get Buchard, who's another character we've come across before. And Buchard literally means hundreds of cows because he could count his cows in hundreds. And that meant he was a Bruggett. So, uh, but the, the giving of hospitality and appropriate hospitality according to your guest's rank was vitally important. Uh, Brickrew has an epithet. He's <laughs> known as Poison Tongue. Nev, at least this is how it's translated. Yeah, Nev Thengard. Yeah, Poison Tongue. Or as someone I know likes to put it, Shit Stirrer. Um, he, and he is well known in every story he appears in. You know he's going to go and foment trouble. That's his purpose. He's a troublemaker. Exactly, exactly. But that's interesting. Here you have this idea of the hospitaler yeah. who is actually not giving guests but causing trouble. He's quite tricksy. 
Um, but uh, since he's the one who's supposed to know what everyone's status is and give them appropriate hospitality, he can then use that against them, almost like a poet could use satire against oh, someone. Oh, yeah, a bit like Creedenvale, who caused so much trouble for the Dagda. Yeah, absolutely. Go back to Moitura and yeah. several... Episode, yeah, yeah, touched on Creedon Vale. Yeah, and uh, well, the, this idea that Creedon Vale was, if you like, an illegal satirist because he used the threat of satire to extort things, whereas Carbra then was a poet who could properly use satire in its proper in legal terms of sense. law and justice. It, exactly, exactly. So, are we saying here that, uh, in fact, Brickrew is a hospitaller mm. who is, in fact, abusing the laws of hospitality? Not quite. He's always within the laws of hospitality. Um, and But there's a way in which I feel like he actually makes people prove that they Deserve are worthy it. of the status. Yeah, exactly, yeah. that they're worthy of the title that they have, be it king or champion or whatever. You know, he, he kind of put test their mettle. It also strikes me that, shall we say in storyteller terms, he's the one who moves the story on. Yeah, yeah. He actually causes the next thing to happen. But I think that's because he's a trickster figure. And yeah. that's always the role of the trickster, mm, mm. is to shift on the plot yeah yeah um and actually his feast is kind of a bit more than a party isn't it oh boy yes it is yeah again it's so linked up with the importance of status in irish society now there's another figure i find interesting mm. in the story and his name is shenica yes shenica who he almost appears to be the opposite he's like the balancing figure yeah of of brick room because shenica is the one who comes up with the sensible solutions and uh, he seems to be always advising what the right thing to do is so Vo voice of justice yeah and of rightness and yeah. of proper order and all the rest of that and of course we get to meet brick Roo's heroes victims in chapter two yes i mean we henderson has kindly sorted this whole epic yes. into chapters so we're just using the chapters exactly. just for sorting things out yeah um mind you his plan to cause problems is quite deliberate isn't it oh yeah it's there right from the beginning right from the architecture of the hall his plan for trouble causing is there and i suppose we ought to just complete chapter one just quite quickly because uh, as i gave at the beginning of the description brick row goes to see uh Cover. Yes. And invites all the nobles of Ulster to a grand feast in his marvellous new feasting hall. Yes. Now they'd love to refuse. Yeah, yeah. I love that thing that Fergus McRoyd says. Oh, yeah. No, we won't go for if we go our dead rap number our living when Brick Crew's finished incensing us against each other. Yes. <laughs> so he's got a, a, a reputation, you know. It's not as if they don't know what they're letting themselves in for. I love the way he persuades them to go. They all know that this is stupid to yeah. go, yeah. that it's going to be trouble and it's going to end in tears exactly <laughs> but a bricker of course makes threats yeah. he makes you know in the same way as he makes them an offer they can't refuse he mm. makes threats that they can't deal ignore, with yeah. they can't exactly, ignore yeah he says he'll set father against son and mother against daughter mm. and it's, he's on and on but it's just the last thing he says that gets me i will set each of the elster women at variance so that they come to deadly blows till their breasts become loathsome and putrid lovely and that's enough for fergus <laughs> <laughs> sure it's better to come says fergus <laughs> So, oh yeah, so yeah. this is a bit like that sort of threat of satire. So, you know, he, he clearly has, you know, both the ability to flatter and to insult 
with great effectiveness. Mind you, the Ulstermen haven't quite lost their wits. No. Uh, they realise that they can't not go to yeah. the party. But it's it's to Shanacha that they turn for the terms, if you like. Yeah. You know. He decides that they should take hostages. Exactly. In other words, that Brick Rue should leave hostages with them so that if he does anything, yeah. the hostages But taking go. hostages, not in the modern sense. No, I mean, this is something that was absolutely common. They're sureties. They're, yeah. they're more like having, you know, guarantors on a loan. The other thing I think is really interesting. Mm. They insist, or, or Shanika insists, that once he's laid out the food, mm. he leaves. Yeah, the brick He gets out. He's excluded from yeah. the feast. Yeah. And that explains the balcony, Exactly, it? yeah. But he's he's built that in from the start. He really knows what he's about. And that's the end of chapter one. Yeah. Well, we finally reached chapter two, but the story actually starts. Yes. <laughs> now, what I really like at the beginning of chapter two is that it starts with Brick Ruth thinking. Um, and I think this is quite unusual for literature of this time, you know, to really give us the inner monologue, if you yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What he decides to do mm -hmm. is to go over the top and indulge in the sport of extreme flattery. Yes. <laughs> At which he excels. He chooses the three greatest heroes of Ulster. Yeah. And he sets them against each other. Yeah, he's essentially set up an opportunity for these, you know, great lauded heroes to make complete idiots of themselves <laughs> and embarrass themselves in public. Now, he does this by as each one of them arrives he offers each one of them separately yeah. the champion's portion yeah now what is your champion's portion and what's so important about it well this goes back to that element of status within the feasting hall um in those descriptions of Tehmithkurta at Tara, there are some very detailed descriptions of exactly what cut of meat each person has mm -hmm. according to their profession and their status. So if you're if you're you are the top champion, you get you get a rump steak. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're a lesser lord, you get some of the ribs, um, and you know, if you're uh, just a juggler or a jester. Then... They might be in on some chitterlings. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Or a trotter or two. Yeah. <laughs> Are we talking largely pig here? Yeah, yeah. At this time, the feasts would have been pork, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it's it's not just getting, if you like, the best cut of meat at the feast. Again, it's kind of a public show that you are top dog mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and in fact as we'll come to it's more than just what you get if you like for your dinner um, in the champions portion it has a lot of other perks with it yeah it struck me that, that it was almost like um, oh and I, I'm not not interested in tennis in yeah. the slightest but it's like the top seeds at tennis which allow you to miss out on some of the minor uh, the qualifying qualifying rounds yeah. and go straight for the major killing the other heroes <laughs> rounds. Yeah, or the one that I always got very confused by. Now again, I really don't know much about it, but we're talking about sports. We have I no know. idea about here. I know. Yeah, so we are very open to correction. But the way I understand is that in, for, in Formula One racing driver racing driving, if you're the top seed, then you get the best position. So you, you get a head start over the people who are below you, which doesn't seem fair at all. And of course, it's all these alpha sportsmen get the best sponsorship exactly, as well. Exactly, yeah. So I suppose, yeah, there are analogies mm -hmm. where the champion's portion is like the sponsorship yeah. your top athlete would get. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so well, next, next thing you know, Cuchulain will be advertising razors. <laughs> <laughs> or warp spasms. Yes. <laughs> now, here's a, here's a question. Warp spasms. What would you choose a Cuchulain to advertise? <laughs> Warp spasm fitness training. <laughs> no, probably a sort of L'Oreal for men. Yeah. <laughs> I am worthless. 
sorry, this is getting silly. No, let's get started. Because we're first, talking about champions, that's why it's silly. The first of the heroes yes. to arrive yes. is the number three seed. Yes, who's Loigra. Now, I love the way um, that um, Brickrew bigs him up. Oh, yeah. This I mean, is what he's good at. Yeah, he goes, Hail now, Logra, the triumphant. Of course. Thou mighty mallet of Bregia, thou hot hammer of Meath. Your flame red thunderbolt, victorious warrior of Ulster. Yeah. But I like the sort of um, hot hammer of me. Oh, yes. Yeah. Thank you, Henderson. That's quite a good <laughs> bit. Yeah. And he tempts him with uh, all the promises of the yeah. championship. Yeah. This is, these are the perks that go along with champion's portion. The list of what he gets mm. is quite interesting. Mm. So it gets, it gets a cauldron of wine with room enough for three warriors. We don't know what. The three warriors what, are supposed the, to do drink it or what? I don't know. Waiter, waiter, there's three warriors so in my wine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he gets a seven-year-old boar mm. who has never eaten anything since, well, since it was little. Yeah. Say, fresh milk and fine meal in springtime, curds and sweet milk in summer, kernels of nuts and wheat in autumn, and beef and broth in the winter. Yeah. Sounds like a good diet anyway. Mm. He also gets a cow lord, and we don't mean a... No, a, we don't mean the Boara, no, yeah. who is a, a lord who he has gets a lot of cows. A, a sort of stud bull, yes. I think it means. Yeah. Uh, that's, since it was a little calf, has, has never had to live on heather of twig tops, mm. but has always had sweet milk and herbs, meadow hay and corn. Yes. In other words, the best fed. Yeah. And the other thing he gets is five score cakes of wheat. Mm. Now, apparently, 25 bush of wheat he used to make these cakes yeah four cakes to a bushel so they're pretty big yeah it's all food no money and jewels yeah but, but i suppose that's the that's brugard exactly yeah because the brugard is the top farmer you know he has the best food possible you know it's it's like the kind of michelin star restaurant yeah. that he, he's he, running he's you certainly know. no barley man butterbur no I mean, he's he's very, very clever and quick-witted. Absolutely. He feels a bit like sort of Loki, having mm. a go at Thor. You know, all these great thick lummoxes of heroes. Yeah. And he can run rings around them. Exactly, yeah. Because, again, even though they know damn well that he's there making trouble against them, Lulgar still seems to kind of fall for the flattery. You know, yeah. they go, yeah, well, of course well, I'll get the champion's portion, yeah. So does Connell. Exactly. Well, Connell, the victorious. Yes, who's the next victim. And he gets greeted like, Hail to thee, Connell the victorious, the hero of victories and combats. By the time the Ulstermen go into foreign lands, you are a distance of three days ahead of them. <laughs> and on returning, they've got your, their backs so that nobody can get past you. <laughs> Um, yeah, he really has a go at the number two seed too. Exactly, yeah. So it it does feel as though Loigra is sort of the, the third best and then Connell's the second best. Now we get to the number one seed. Exactly. Cucullin himself. Of course. Now he's greeted as the victor of Bregia, the bright banner of the Liffey, the darling of Evan, mm. beloved of wives and maidens. Yes. Um, who wards off feuds and frays, seeks justice for each man. <laughs> Um, and attainest alone to what all the Ulstermen fail in. Yes. <laughs> um, everyone acknowledges his bravery, his valour and his achievements. Yes. Phew. Yes. <laughs> There's a nice little uh, bit of structure where, you know, first he goes to Loigra and, and lays it on with a trowel. And then he goes to Cunnel and, you know, does the same thing again, flatters him, uh, offers him the same thing. And there's a little comment that says that, you know, and his, his treachery was twice as great for that mm. because he'd already offered it to Loigra. And then once he offers it to Cuchulain, it says, and his treachery was three times as great yeah, for, for offering it to Cuchulain. Really treating the heroes like thugs and thickies. Though, yeah, but he? they're responding like that. Aren't they just? You know? It rem 
reminds me, you know, there's lots of folk tales about uh, the youngest son who's faced with a series of um, ogres or trolls, mm. and he escapes by setting them against each other. Yeah. Or think Bilbo and the trolls. Or exactly. there's a story called Momotaro, a Japanese story, mm. where he sets the trolls to fighting because mm. um, they can't decide who's going to eat him. It's that sort of yeah. thing. And he seems very good at this. It's part of his job. Like I say, I feel like he's making sure that they actually prove that they are worthy of the title of hero. But of course, the next section, we're into back to the feasting hall stuff again, because yes. uh, you've got the three heroes in. Now mm. you've got to decide who else is attending the party yes. who's going to witness this, because it's really important who turns up. Oh, absolutely, it? because, again, it is this sort of microcosm. It's sort of anyone who is anyone is going to be there. So give us just a few examples of the, uh, shall we say, the most important the celebrities. Yeah, yeah. OK, well, obviously, you know, the, the highest guest of honour has got to be come cover. And mm -hmm. His couch has been put, you know, higher than all of the rest and so on. But he also has his queen, whose mm -hmm. name is Mohan. Uh, now, she's a daughter of Jochad Fezluk, um, just like Esna Uothuk, who, who, also, uh, who we discussed last time, yeah. who was also paired with Cun Cover. Yeah. So, I mean, I was wondering, you know, were these names for the same person? But I have found another Dinhaka's poem where they're sort of named as sisters, you know. They're, so he's they're married both, first, or he's, he's, he's got both sisters as Yeah, three. and, and that, that is quite a common thing within these stories, you Concurrently know. Concurrently or one after the other? Well, that, does it matter? It doesn't really matter <laughs> by the look of it. So obviously she's going to be, if you like, the, the top seed of the women. Now, one of the other guests who I... Another celebrity. Yes, yes, here on the red carpet at Doon the Rotherga, Um One that I'm particularly fond of is Fergus MacLeide. Mm -hmm. um, because it's the story of Echtra Fergus of MacLeide, uh, where uh, Fergus actually goes to Dundrum Bay, which is uh, Loch Rotherga, right, right, Castle, right yeah. by where this uh, fort is. And he he's the one who falls asleep on a sand and wakes up because leprechauns are trying to carry him away. And uh, so he catches the leprechauns, gets the secret of swimming underwater. There's adventures with water monsters and hairdressers and all kinds of things. <laughs> we'll it's, have to look at that one later. It's a great one. But uh, so it's interesting that, yeah, that, that he's a guest here and that he is so closely associated with Loch Rodriguez. Yeah, we did mention somewhere else that in fact leprechauns are water creatures. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So this, and this is where he catches them. Now you've so, got yeah, Ferva de Fairben, who is... We mentioned in the yeah, Cothru story. Exactly, who again is a, a, given as a son of Cuncover and of Ethna, who could be Mugan's sister. Um, so he's also listed as being there. So he's, he's clearly, you know, well enough liked and known about to be mentioned in this, in this honour list. There's a few who just, I think, have, have really good names. There's someone there whose name was Mwyn Rever, which means fat neck. <laughs> <laughs> which you just hope is not the name his mother gave him. Well, um, the, one of the others you were telling me about, it's even worse, isn't it? The one about the beetle? Yes, uh, this is Dovthuk. Doyle Tenguk is how he is sometimes known. And he's the beetle-tongued. Dovthuk the beetle-tongued. Now, there is a bit later on in the text where he seems to almost take the place of Brickrew. And in other stories, he often has a similar role, mm -hmm. you know. So where Brickrew has a poison tongue... He's got a beetle tongue. He's got a beetle tongue, yeah. So, a bit but, crawly. Yeah. <laughs> he's a bit of a creepy crawly. Yes. And then, you know, there's another guest. And why you'd invite him to your party, I don't know, because he's got Connell the False, you know. So one wonders how he got that name. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, it's a long list of guests. Well, of course, once they've uh, once they're all in, mm -hmm. the first thing they do is throw Bricker out. Yes, of course, because that that was the one of the conditions on which they came, and you know he has to be 
uh, escorted, I think, by eight armed men mm-hmm. to, make, to make sure that he leaves the hall. But and he, with his parting gift. Yes, he throws the champion's portion back at them. Figuratively speaking. Yeah, figuratively speaking. He doesn't actually throw the piece of meat. But as he's leaving... Don't forget what I told you! Yeah, it's like, and whoever is the best among you, of course, help yourself to the champion's portion. And certainly the fight begins immediately. Exactly, because then we have three uh, squires who immediately sort of stand up and go, yep, that's for my master. No, it's interesting the words used is Spencer. And the word's familiar. What do you make of it in this context? Well, I think that um, what it's referring to is the jug and who you could also translate as cupbearer. We've mentioned these before, particularly in Maitura, that they, these are one of the class of people that seem to have a lot more power than you might expect. Well, that's why I was confused, because here it mentions um, the cupbearer, the mm. Spencer, mm. and yet the, it's the charioteers of the champions mm. are the ones who are speaking on their master's behalf. Yes, the way that I see it is that the Spencer, the Jogvara, they're the ones who are cutting the meat, and uh, actually... Who do they give it to? Doling it out, exactly. I see what you mean, And yeah. that the, the charioteers are, they're very much the squires for their champions. Um, because, of course, in chariot fighting, you've got to have someone to drive and someone to fight. And so they're very much, if you like, the squire, the right-hand man of the champion. So that's why they're there and speaking for their master. Yeah. They're more than just his driver. Exactly. Well, whatever happens, this winds up with the heroes who seem to have their weapons to hand. Of course. They begin to fight. Yeah, yeah, which is not what you want in the middle of a feasting hall. But, you know, we're pretty sure this is what Bricker was after. And, of course, this is where um, Shenika comes in. Exactly, yes. And he's the one that they turn to, you know, to, to try and solve this issue. You know, so- earlier on, you were talking about his role as being almost a balance to Bricker. Yeah. Um, so I was just looking at that name. Does it imply historian? Yeah, it does. The Shenacha is definitely, you know, it's a term for a historian. But I think that what it implies is, you know, someone of, of great learning. And, uh, for example, there was a, a character who's a very deliberate fabrication to explain the Shenachas more, which is the great body of legal work. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was a character, a mythical judge called Shenachas, Mm. invented who was the originator of all these laws so it could be referencing that but I think it also shows that yeah here's someone who's at the top of the learning tree Mm -hmm. you know where Brickrew would be at the top of the the farming tree and as you're saying he sorts it out quite neatly yes yeah he does uh, in that sort of very this is the just and the right way what he says is that for tonight you know for one night only and um, we will split the champion's portion equally into three parts. But then when the feast is over, we'll settle the matter of who deserves it. Um, but they're going to go to an outside arbiter in order to decide who should get it. He sends them to Kroken, doesn't he? They send them to Kroken and to Alil specifically um, at Kroken. Not Maeve. Not to Maeve, no. <laughs> It's interesting that he should choose to send them outside. I mean, yeah. isn't this effectively washing dirty linen in public? Well, I think it's more a question of, uh, you know, proving worthiness in, in public. But also that idea that if you have a disinterested party, you mm-hmm. know, someone who is not part of your immediate social structure, then they have some kind of impartiality in so deciding. So they can arbitrate. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So 
let's move on to chapter three. Yes. Uh, now, I love this this section. I yeah. think this is the funniest part of the story, and I'm quite convinced it would have had the original audience laughing their heads off. Oh, yeah, absolutely, definitely. Yeah, so we're back to Brickrew thinking, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> back to internal monologue. But this time it's his intent to set the women of Ulster against each other. So what's happening? Just yeah. paint the picture. Well, it seems as though they haven't yet arrived. Right, you know, OK. They were probably still getting ready. Yeah, yeah, all those... Uh, so they're late Stereotype. arriving at the hall. Yeah, but they they arrive separately at any rate. And Brickrew, from his outside position, from this gallery or solar or whatever it is, he spots the the women of Ulster coming a few hills away. Yeah, three ridges is described as. Yes, yeah. And now, whether uh, this means fortification ditches, yeah, fields, or... ridges, and they seem to be all coming from different directions. That's the idea, yeah. You can kind of see how they're converging on the hall from possibly three different directions. There's basically one led by Loigra's wife, Fethelm, mm -hmm. um, and she's got her retinue of 50 women. Uh, then you've got Lendiver, who's Connell's wife, and she's got her retinue of 50 women. And then you've got Ever, or Emer, who's Cuchulain's wife, and she has her 50 women. So you've got a hundred. 153 women yeah and they're all converging yes on this three one point ridges away from the so he goes right now i can see it i can see an ideal moment for mischief making here exactly exactly so he sets off to meet them yes and he's got this idea hasn't he that if he can persuade them that uh, the first to enter the hall yes we'll... will be the highest status exactly yes that you whoever is coming can't you? yeah yeah Who, whoever is best will be the first to enter the hall so he does the same again the first one he goes to is is Fethelm, who's the wife of Loigra, if you like the number three seed yeah he um, starts piling on the flattery there oh, doesn't he, he does hail to thee wife of Loigra the triumphant Fethelm of the fresh heart is no nickname for thee with respect to thine excellency of form wisdom and lineage <laughs> she laps it up oh yeah of course she does well you know, she starts to sort of leaping ridges, it's described as, but she starts to pick up her feet and move a lot faster. Well, I, I sort of see her maybe beginning to strut a bit, let us say, you know, or swagger just a little bit, yeah. you know. But of course, he's not going to stop there as our brick crew. You know, next he moves on to Lendover, who is uh, Connell the Victorious's uh, missus. This time he calls her the darling and pet of all mankind <laughs> on account of her splendour and luster. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he goes, goes on about her husband as well, you know, as yes. far as thy spouse is concerned, he's surpassed all the heroes of mankind and in valour, communist, just in the same way that you're the best. Exactly. The best woman of Ulster. Yes. Um, of course, she likes that too, mm -hmm. doesn't she? Mm -hmm. And then finally he gets to Everett or Emer. Who's... Yeah, sorry, I tend to think of her as Emer, but of course, that's a modern, yeah. well, the, modern the, Irish it's, version. It's still a very popular Irish name, Emer is, so I'll, I'll probably end up saying both all the time. But yes, of course... Again, because she's Cuchulain's missus, you know, she's the one who's getting three times the flattery. Oh, yeah, fair <laughs> hair is for thee, no nickname. Kings and princes contend for you in jealous rivalry as the sun surpasses the stars of heaven. So far do you outshine the women of the whole world in form and shape and lineage, etc., 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 etc. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so he's basically, he's inciting them. So now they each want to be the first to then enter the feasting meet. hall. Yes. 
And first when they meet, they're all in perfect step. Not one of them is moving faster than any of the others. But of course, they're still watching each other and going, oh, I've still got to be first to enter this hall. So they speed up a little. They do. And by the second ridge, they're jogging along a fair bit, but and still no the... one's in front. And by the third ridge, they hike up their skirts and they leg it as fast <laughs> as they possibly can. Exactly. 153 women yeah. all racing down the hill. Yeah. And they all converge at the door of the feasting yes. hall. <laughs> and the noise and the shouting and yes. the screaming is such that they all thought everyone inside thinks they're under attack of course they start to bar the doors yes <laughs> and uh they, they, they reach for their swords yes naturally now Ema gets a foot in the door yeah she gets there first and she gets there just before the door is closing i think it's something like she puts her shoulder against yeah. it or something like it's that. just total uproar and chaos. exactly yes but i think it's uh, you know they figure out i think shenica figures out what it is that's yeah, it happening. gets better though yeah it's because of what their husbands do exactly yeah so the women are barred outside but of course the husbands aren't going to stand for that yeah so now you've got uh Logra and connell well they yeah. look around you they can't get their wives through the door and they realize what's going on mm. So they just start making holes in the walls. Yeah, they just start battering <laughs> down the rattle and wattle and daub, just ripping holes in the yeah. walls. And of course, Cahillan's not going to no put up with this. No. It's got to be best. Yeah. So what he does is just lift the whole house up in the air <laughs> yeah. so his wife can get in from underneath. Yes. <laughs> but then when he plonks it down, yeah. it lands so hard that... Rickrew and his wife are kind of catapulted out of their balcony and uh, sent splat into the middle of the courtyard with the dogs. And the, and the whole house lands at a precarious angle. Exactly, yeah. It's come, it's come back lopsided. <laughs> Meanwhile, you've got uh, Shenika yelling and trying to keep yep. the peace. Yeah. And he's trying to keep a hold on the situation and mm. shouting, no, this is no battle, you know, battle of words, battle of words, not battle of swords. Yes. Words, words, words now, not swords. Yes. It's, uh, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's wonderful. Words, not weapons. Yeah, but what's nice about this is that, you know, Shenika, again, he, he always knows what is the right thing and he says the right thing is that the women should have essentially a poet's battle mm -hmm. or what would now be battle rap um but in order for them to do that they would need to be highly qualified highly educated poets so they, they we've now got the battle rap yeah exactly yeah they actually listen yeah and everyone settles down yeah to listen to the women's yeah. poetry. And of course, women. you have to be at the top of your profession if you're going to extemporise, yes. isn't it? I've picked out a few bits of it because they, they go on at length. Oh, they do. And I, I'm going to choose a few bits myself to have a, a bit of a translate poke at. Yeah, so later. maybe this this This, this could trench, be one of our little yeah. experimental test trenches. Yeah. yeah. But uh, what I've got now is, is, is uh, Featherham says, I was born of a mother in freedom, one in rank and embraced mine elders, sprung from loins at a royal in the beauty of peerless breeding, lovely in form, I am reckoned, and noted for figure and comely, fostered in warrior virtues, in the sphere of goodly demeanour, and so on. Mm. She also then talks about her husband, but um, I've just chosen a few bits. Mm. Now, Lendlera, she answers very similarly. Mm. Mine is a mean too of beauty, of reason, with grace of deportment, finely and fairly stepping in front of the women of Ulster. See me step to the meat hall. My spouse and my darling, the colonel, big is his shield, and triumphant, majestic his gait, and commanding. <laughs> you know, but then yeah. it's Ema's turn, of and course. I love what she says. Oh, yeah. None mine equal in beauty, for I am the picture of graces, mean, full, noble, and goodly, mine eye like a jewel that flasheth. Figure of grace, or beauty, or wisdom, or bounty, or chasteness. <laughs> Sighing for me is Ulster, a nut of the heart I am clearly. 
If I were wanton, no husband would be yours tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but she's well matched with Cuchulain, you know, that they both seem to have this status whereby people can't help just falling over themselves in love with them and it's this whole thing yeah you know if I chose you know they don't always fight them off you, you, would, you wouldn't have a husband left between you <laughs> well this is enough for Brick Crew yeah. actually he hasn't had enough now yeah yeah and the problem is that these great lummoxes of heroes mm. have left his wonderful feasting hall in a wreck absolutely yeah. there's holes in the wall and the entire building <laughs> it's, is lopsided it's crooked yeah and rightly mm. he demands that the Ulsterman repair it immediately yes they put Puts them under a gash it's that serious that they should uh, not take drink or food or sleep until his house has been put back the way it was you know because again as a brugget this is his prized mm. possession you know mm. this is his 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 everything you know so yeah and Shenika here agrees with him yeah exactly but it, again Shenika is the one who comes up with the means if you like he says well whoever broke it should fix it <laughs> <laughs> well I mean uh, it's fairly straightforward from the, to mend the holes in the walls. Yes, yeah. The problem really comes mm. with the putting the house back on an even keel. Yes. <laughs> Coquillon in his rage mm. has shifted the whole thing. Yeah. But he can't get it back. He's yeah. not strong enough. Yeah. So what does he do? He goes into one of his famous warp spasms. Yes. Warp spasm TM. Uh, <laughs> This might take a little bit of explaining, I think, for, for those who may not be familiar with the stories of Cúchulain. Um, that this was, again, it was sort of a special... It's one-off to him, isn't it? He's, I think, the only one who does it. Yeah, I, th I think it is unique to him. And yeah. it's not even really berserk. No. Berserking. It, it's something much weirder. Yeah, th there's this very physical contortion that goes on. There's things like all of his hair gets yeah. drawn back into his head. That's right. A drop of blood yeah. appears at the base of each one of his hairs yeah. mm. his hair then shrinks down into his head yeah so he looks like head a hedgehog yeah, yeah. and uh, then he get he, he completely distorts his shape doesn't yeah, he yeah and there's like there's one eye that swells until it's massive and the other one shrinks until it's just a pinpoint you know it's it's all very kind of grotesque sort of, yeah and... almost like the Incredible Hulk but yeah, not green yeah yeah exactly in fact, he is the Incredible Hulk. He's yes. the original Incredible Hulk, really. Yeah, yeah, Don't yeah. make him angry. You, you wouldn't like, like me when I'm angry. No, exactly, exactly. Um, but it does seem to be, you know, this very particular thing to Cúchulain. Um, and I wondered whether it might be kind of linked to his origins because the the story of his conception is very oh, interesting. Triple conception. Yeah, because he he has to get conceived three times before he can actually be born. <laughs> Which might sound a bit peculiar, but then last time we had a boy with uh, three fathers, so, you know... Uh, in, three, in three stripes. Yeah. <laughs> so the first time Cúchulain is conceived, he has two otherworld parents who um, appear in the form of a flock of birds. Mm. When the people of Ulster, including Dechtana, who is a daughter of mm. uh, Concover in, in this uh, story, Dechtana helps to deliver the baby. And so the next day, though, when they try to bring it back out of the other world, it dies. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a second conception where um, Dechtana has a dream where Lug comes to her and says, you know, I was the father of the baby and now I'm going to conceive the baby again with you. Mm -hmm. And so she gets pregnant again. Um, but th And this time he has one other world, one this world parent. That's a little bit more successful, mm. but he still doesn't survive. Well, what happens is <clears> because <throat> she's pregnant, there are rumours that 
it's Concover who is the father of her child. Mm. There's rumours of incest. And so Concover marries her off to Suldiv, but she doesn't want to go to her wedding bed while pregnant. And mm. so she ends the pregnancy. Mm. You know, mm. it's quite vicious. She beats her womb against the bedpost until she loses the child. So that's the second conception um, that fails. And so the third time, Cuchulain is conceived by Suldiv and by Dechtana. Um, so two human parents. And this time he stays in the world. Mm -hmm. But there's this kind of theme whereby, yeah, he he can't pass over easily from the other world into this world. Mm. And I wondered whether the warp spasm was almost like this image of him never quite fitting into this world. Mm -hmm. You know, because again, he had that hero's growth of, you know, twice the normal speed well, and yeah. all that. Seven years old, he was the size of a, a 14 adult, year old yeah. and all that stuff, you know, and he was always precocious adults, and, teenager, yeah. you know, all this stuff. So, you know, I just kind of had this feeling that the warp spasm, it was almost like he doesn't fit completely into his body. It's difficult to know. I mm. mean, I'd always seen the three conceptions mm. of being, there were three versions of the story, mm. uh, and unlike the Egyptians who could believe half a dozen things yeah. at once, the ancient Egyptians who didn't care, <laughs> um, there was the need to try and make stories fit, mm. so you've got to find a way of making these three stories mm. Uh, to synchronise them into one story. Mm. But I don't know, it's a very strange one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. The, the warp spasm mm. is just a little bit odd. Oh, yeah. And we're not going to get to the bottom of it in this, this No, this I, don't, I don't think so, but it's something that you will come across in any yeah. story concerning Kukulana. What is interesting is that I think you can easily see how in later folktales it became a giant. Yeah, yeah. And the one I was thinking of was the Two Giants of Knockmany Hill, which I think is an 18th... I don't think it goes back much mm. before the 18th century, where he becomes the giant who's fighting with Fionn yes. they've got a great grand argument yeah. and at one point the Cucullan giant goes to Fionn's house to beat mm. him up a bit mm. and uh, Fionn's wife says oh he's not here and while he's hanging around mm. waiting for him to turn up Fionn says oh of course you know you're not as strong as Fionn I mean every day Fionn turns the house round so that it faces the sunshine yeah. and Cucullan thinks right yeah. <laughs> can I do that and yeah. he does it yes yeah yeah. Um, which is clearly a memory of this story yeah yeah. that, that business of picking up the house and you know yeah if you're going to pick up the house then you must be a giant you know but in this case it's it's because of his warp spasm that he's able yeah. to do it it also seems to fix the feasting hall as a, a wattle and daub construction yes yeah but it makes more sense with this temporary construction idea yeah yeah that it might have been a, a temporary construction but it might Even have been a little on exaggerated a, yeah but it might have been over a stone uh, base or a stone Whatever, it's Enclosure. a great, it's a great yeah. story. I think it's hilarious. Mm. But of course now, like everything else, once you're done with the funny bit of the story, yeah. it's back to the feasting hall. Exactly. And yes. more explaining how people are sat in status order. Yes. Now this time it's the women who have to be shown where to sit in terms of their status. Exactly. Far too many to mention. Of but course. Give us just a couple of notable celebrities. Yeah. <laughs> I do feel like I'm on the red carpet here. Um, well, one name that really caught my eye was a brig because there aren't very many brigs, as we discovered when we went we looking did, for yeah. Bridget back in Series 1, Episode 5. Um, but there is a brig here, but she's uh, got this epithet of Brethuk, which means that she's a judge. Mm -hmm. So again, we've got a very highly educated and highly qualified woman in mm -hmm. uh, the, the court And again, of it's quite nice to see that there is evidence for, uh, yeah. shall we say, qualification and education. I think so, yeah. It and does I, turn up now and again. Not yeah. as, common we, as commonly as we would like, but no. it really does turn up. Yeah, I think so. I think it is an, a, an indication, you know, that that's part of the nobility of these women, is actually their education. 
um, which I think is quite nice. Um, but there's also Morgan, who we met before mm-hmm. as as a, a sister to Ethna. But there's uh, loads of them who are daughters of Yucca's Fedluk. This is something that I'm starting to find all over the place, you know, and particularly throughout the Din Henicus, whenever you meet female characters, loads of them seem to be daughters to Yochad Fethluk, mm-hmm. you know? Um, what do you make of that? Well, um, I think that, in a way, Yochad Fethluk is, he's a bridging point between, if you like, the sort of the she other world and the sort of the human genealogies, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Because he was wedded to Aideen, again, in a sort of a human form, uh, rather than her other world form, when mm. she's reborn, um, you know, that it kind of gives the more recent generations, it gives them a kind of a mythological heritage. heritage. You know, it links up the stories. And of course, you've got quite a few uh, daughters of Conqueror Conqueror as Oh, well. yeah. And, and he's got two just called Fedelm, you know. <laughs> One of nine shapes, the yes. other of the fair hair. Um, yeah. Now, um, I wonder that about this epithet for Fedelm, who's the, the wife of uh, Loigra, with this fresh heart thing. I wonder whether it might be something closer to the Noik Kruthuk of the Vedum of the Nine Shapes, yeah. you know, each more lovely than the last. I don't know what it's quite odd. what's going and on then there. Of course, you've got that rather odd wife of Lugard of the uh, the Red Stripes one. Oh yes, Dervigal is there as well. You know, um, as we sort of mentioned in passing before, she's the only other woman about whom there's an other yeah. tale. You know, the so they're all tale. there. Quite Absolutely. a quite a, a group of celebrities. Yes, yeah. Right, chapter five. Here we are. Um, of course, the argument's not over. Of course not. But no. what I find odd is all the way through, Brickroof's been the troublemaker. Yeah. And Shenika's being the one who's trying to keep the peace. Yes. But he really is causing trouble himself now because yeah. once the women start to make a fuss, mm. he he has a real go at them. Yeah. What's it he says? Through the guile of women, Miss Seamoth, <laughs> men's shields are wont to be splintered. We yeah. warned you sometimes Henderson's translations. There's one of your Miss Seamoths. Yes. But yeah. nevertheless, yeah. you know, you know, women's guile causes yeah. men to fight. Of course, yeah, because men can't help themselves, poor things. Uh, well, it's not calming things down, is no, it? No, no, definitely not. But, you know, Emer gives as good as she gets. You she know. does, doesn't she? Yeah. she? She starts off with a, oh, a normal list of her husband's excellencies yes. and how indispensable he is and all the rest of him. Mm. But what I'm really interested in is the fact that here she gives a, a long list of Cucullan's feats. Yes, his battle feats, which he's supposed to have learned from uh, Scothuk and uh, Uathuk over in Scotland or somewhere away from yeah, Ireland, yeah, anyway. Over in Sky, the Isle yes, of Skye. Yeah. One of the best lists, I think, yeah. around. And yeah. they are interesting. Look. Yeah, now this is kind of literal translations of Yeah, I'm going to read this because yeah. I'll never remember them. No, they're great. Uh, here they are. Both over breath feet. Mm-hmm. Then there's the apple feet. Mm-hmm. There's the ghost feet. <laughs> the screw feet. <laughs> the cat feet. <laughs> the valiant champion's whirling feet. <laughs> the barbed spear feet. Mm. The quick stroke. The mad roar, mm-hmm. the hero's fury, the wheel feet, the sword edge feet, and the, I love this yeah. one, the climbing against spike pointing things and straightening his body on each of them feet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry, it's that last one. I know. <laughs> now, some of them are kind of, you can understand, I yes. mean, the, the mad roar. Yeah, or the hero's fury, you know, which could be reference to the warp spasm or, or a berserker, you know. Yeah. Or the valiant of... champion's whirling mm. feet. Yes. Either they sound like sort of um, combos on computer games yes, or, yeah. or, or D&D extra feats. Yeah. That we get, you know, I'm trying yeah. to think, you know, you get your, uh, when you get your points, 
mm. you can take one of these feats. Yes, yeah, when, when you're levelling up. When you're le- I tell yeah. you, it's, uh, but some of them are just plain odd. Uh, Henderson has kind of listed them in this literal translation. He goes, you know, it's very hard to make sense of this. And there has been enough speculation about some of the, his better known feats, like the salmon leap or the, or I think that, the, yeah, another... the salmon leap, which yeah. is to do with um, jumping into the middle of things mm. to take another jump, which yeah. takes... Oh, uh, there is a yeah, but the... description of it, but it's a bit weird. Uh, there's quite a lot that people have, you know, tried to look at these things and go, oh, yeah. there's some kind of martial arts mystery in here or yeah. something like that. But um, I don't know whether you can really reconstruct a well, martial art from these. I didn't finish the sentence earlier and I got, got distracted, mm. but I was going to say either they, I'm torn between feeling mm. that they're either like feats in D&D yeah. or, or role-play games yeah. where you give things strange yeah. names to make them sound more interesting yeah. and be worth using your precious points in taking mm. or whether they are just mnemonics mm. to explain a, a movement mm. in a, a martial art yeah yeah or or a technique a, a school yeah, that's what I mean, a technique. yeah yeah in fact there there are some that i went and looked up with thanks to our, our dear friend hugh kerrigan um, he has studied some of the later medieval Italian and 15th German, century. yeah, fifteenth-century Italian and German sort of sword manuals and so on. Um, and just that when you again just look at a literal translation of the names for the various, you know, they're called guard rather than feet, and you know, positions and what have you. Position. These are there's similar yeah. poses, and they're, they're, these are just a list of names. Mm. The half iron door. Yes. <laughs> the falcon guard. That's yeah. more realistic. The window guard. Mm. The guard of the woman. Yes. The boar's tooth guard. The two horned guard. Mm. Or the gate of all iron. Yes. You know, these are the names of feats, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And and they can sound just as obscure or they can be just, again, you know, a mnemonic or just a name that when you're learning it, you know, today I'm learning the apple feet. Well, that's what Hugh described to me, Mm. was that you take the half tree, half window pose. Yeah. Was to remind you that one, you needed to be tall Mm. and the other, you needed to be solid. Yeah, yeah. So it was to remind you to move from one to the other. Mm. It was merely a mnemonic. Yeah, yeah. And it makes you wonder whether some of these were in fact mnemonics for... A style of fighting. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the people come across these like and have added magical powers to yeah, them. Yeah. Because after all, it's Kukulam we're talking about. Yeah. He's obviously, he's got magical powers. Yeah. Anyone who can make his hair disappear into his head whenever he felt like it. <laughs> I don't know. We're just yeah, guessing. Yeah. But it is. It's a lovely list. It is. Yeah, and I love yeah. the way that she uses it against Shellica. Yeah. But it's not finished, are mm. it? I mean, I love the next bit because uh, at this point, Ema and Kokolan are getting far too much attention for the likes of Colonel. So he decides that he's going to, well, challenge Kokolan to a duel. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Kokolan casually fobs him off. Yeah. Saying yeah. he's already had a busy day. <laughs> and as a duel on top of this would be boring. Yes. And besides, he's just too tired to accommodate Colonel now. So will you please go away? Yeah. Yeah. Very dismissive. All right. But it is an interesting day that he's had. He tells the story of why he's so tired. Yeah. Yeah. And it has to do with having met his horse, Liamacha, coming out of a lake. Now, it's a bit confusing because in other sources, like in the birth story, when he's fir- in his first birth, there are two foals born at the same mm. time. And they are then grow up to be Liamaka and of Shenglen, his two famous horses. But in this one, it seems to be that this is how he got his two horses. So I don't know. It's not completely clear to me. But he met Liamaka coming out of a lake anyway. And uh, so he flung his arms around her neck and they wrestled. And this wise rode 
all over the country of Ireland. And then once they'd done that, he went to another lake and found a Dove Shangan, the other horse, and did the same thing again. Yeah, so, he's just showing up. Yeah, so he's been twice around the country wrestling his two horses all day. <laughs> Sounds like an excuse to Doesn't me. It? <laughs> Not tonight, dear. I've been wrestling, wrestling the horses. horses. <laughs> just reminds me of... Um, Oh, in the Beowulf story, mm. when Hrothgar asks mm. Beowulf, are you sure you can uh, see off this monster? Yeah. Ah, he says, that's nothing. I spent six days under the water recently oh, in yes. full armour, hunting a monster, and I didn't come to the surface again until I killed it. Yeah. I mean, that's just <laughs> praising the story. Yeah, yeah. But it seems quite typical yes. to just tell a completely over-the-top showing-off story. Yeah, so yeah. he says, will you fight me? Nah, nah, nah. No. I'm busy wrestling the horses. I've got time yeah, for you. yeah. Uh, Although I do, I do find it interesting that the horses emerge from lakes and that you've got these yes. two horses, you know, in the same way that you've got, you know, one horse is responsible for Loch Nekuk and another one is responsible for Loch Ree. Horses you and know. lakes. Yeah. And the horsemen who live, the yockets who live around the lakes. Yes. There's a lot of significance here that mm. we could talk about for a lot longer. Yeah. But there's also a prefiguring of parts later in the story, which is this, this circuit of Ireland, you know, that unlike a lot of the Dinhenicus that we've been looking at so far... This one really does cover the island, you know, it, it mm -hmm. goes beyond the kind of local area that someone would be familiar with in the course of their own lifetime. And it, it has this sort of wider sense of the country, you know, being a vast place, but also somewhere that someone of Cuchulain's uh, stature could yeah. go around twice in one day. And interestingly know? enough, the story is very shortly to move out of the feasting hall yeah. and travel all the way around Ireland. Exactly, yeah. So it's like a prefiguring of that yeah. in this little story, you know. And there may also be another version, as you say, mm. of uh, how Colin got his horses. Yeah, exactly. And uh, we, we did a, we talked a little about this in mm. Series 1, Episode 2, we were looking at Maka. Yes, because and there the... was a version of the Maka story which linked with the birth of Cúchulain. Um, that there was a version in Galway where when Macha came to the end of her race and lay down to give birth, that one of those children was then grew up to be Cúchulain. Um So we've got that kind of horse connection there and then the other conception story. that Which may also earlier. connect with Rhiannon yes. and the, the Falls series one, episode, episode two. two. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and so, as I say, at the end of chapter five, mm. it's Bricklow that calls a halt to the quarrelling. Yes, yeah. He's had enough. Yeah. And finally, this has got out of hand. Yeah. It's, it's gone better than he thought. Yeah. But he goes, no, that's yeah. it. Okay, now it's time to actually properly feast and appreciate all this stuff that I have made for you. Look how well I've done it. So they feast and drink for three days. Yep. <laughs> and, it's, and three nights. Yes, of course. And it seems like they do so in perfect peace. Mm-hmm. But it's not the end of the story. No, because it hasn't been resolved by any means. No, there's still the thorny issue of the champion's portion to yes. settle. And the implication that whoever gets the champion's portion at Brickrew's feast is then also the champion of Evwyn and therefore the champion of Ulster. So, you know, there's quite a lot at stake. So the next section is going to see our heroes and their squires, along with poor long-suffering Shanika. Yeah. Uh, Travelling out on more adventures all over the country. Absolutely. And, and we're, we're looking forward. <laughs> yeah, we're looking forward to the next section, yeah. which involves otherworld cats, yes. uh, cups, and yeah, giants, giants. Yes. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. Thank you for listening to Ogilvy Nanagas conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com 
you can get in touch via email on the story archaeologists at gmail.com. <laughs>